Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, right at the beginning of your Bible. A um, musician named Andrew Peterson has written a song about marriage. It's called Dancing in the Minefields. Dancing in the Minefields. Go home and look it up and and listen to it. Um, One of the verses of the song says, I do are the two most famous last words, the beginning of the end. But to lose your life for another I've heard is a good place to begin. Because the only way to find your life is to lay your own life down. And I believe it's an easy price for the life that we have found. And it goes on to talk about how marriage is dancing in the minefields. It's dancing in the minefields. On one side of things, it's a dance. It's a very fun dance. On the other side of things, it's a field of mines. It's a field of mines. There are bombs all around it. If you're not careful, they will explode. They will explode. You will step on them. But if you know where they are, you can dance through the minefields successfully. You have to know where those mines are and how to diffuse them. Uh, Notice I said diffuse, not avoid. We don't avoid the mines. We diffuse them. We have to actively attack the mines instead of just not mentioning them. We're going to talk about conflict today. Not just marital conflict. We're going to talk about all kinds of conflict. You can take what I'm going to preach today. I'm going to specifically angle it toward marriage, but but you can take what I'm talking about and apply it to any conflict that you have in your life. Um, And so we're going to talk about conflict, dancing in the minefield. So um, Genesis 3, we'll start in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, excuse me, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. There is no marriage that does not have conflict. Every marriage in this room has conflict. If you're here and your spouse isn't here, y'all have conflict. If you're here and you're not married, this sermon is the most applicable to you as we talk about marriage because you have conflict in your life. You have conflict with other people in your life. Maybe it's with other family members. Maybe it's with people at work. Maybe you're a youth and it's with it's conflict with your siblings or with your parents. Um, how do you manage that conflict? How do you deal with conflict in your life? What do you do? We're going to specifically apply this conflict to marriage, but the principles are the same otherwise. Our questions for today are this. Where does conflict come from? How can we manage and resolve conflict when it comes? And what new habits can we put in place um, of that conflict within our marriage or within our relationships? Where does conflict come from? Remember one of our guiding principles as we've talked about marriage. We're in week four of, of six talking about marriage. The fact is you married a sinner. You married a sinner. Loving that sinner is meant to make you more like Jesus. That's the point of marriage. Marriage is not meant to make you happy. It's meant to make you holy. It's meant to make you more like Jesus. Conflict happens in marriage or any other relationship for that matter because you're dealing with two sinners. When two sinners butt heads, when two sinners come in contact with each other, conflict occurs because both sinners are looking out for themselves. We look here in Genesis 3 at the first marital conflict. The first fight a couple ever had is in Genesis chapter 3. The devil comes into the garden as a serpent and he comes to devour Eve. He comes after Eve and Adam stands there like a doofus. He stands there and watches the serpent come up Talk to his wife, say, hey, eat of this tree. He knows, Adam knows what's going to happen. If she eats of that tree, God said she's going to die. But I'm just going to stand here and not say anything. I'm just going to stand here and let that stupid serpent devour my wife. That's what he does. And this is the temptation of, of any man, honestly. Men, you will constantly be tempted to be passive. You will. We were created to be warriors, to protect our family, and our temptation is to take a nap and let the dragon storm the castle. Like, that's just what we do. A good amount of marital conflict arises from that. Or am I the only one with this struggle? You know, you had a hard day at work. You just want to sit and relax. But your wife wants to tell you all about her day, right? And so you're sitting here. You're trying to zone out. You're trying to rest but she's telling you everything about your, her day, every detail of her day, and you're sitting there, and you're just grunting through it. Uh-huh. Man, that's fascinating, honey. Yeah, that sounds really crazy. And she knows. She knows. She knows you're not paying attention. And she'll ask you that question. Did you even hear what I said? Did you even hear what I said? And you might have heard enough of it to cover yourself, and say, yeah, you said this and this and this. And, but you know you're being passive. You know you're not paying attention. You know you're not listening. In the New Testament, when the New Testament looks back at Genesis 3, 
it rarely calls Eve the one that, that committed the sin here. It, ra- it rarely attributes this problem to Eve. It, it was Adam's fault, according to the New Testament. Adam is the one who should have stepped up and protected his wife. Eve is sometimes blamed for this, one or two times, but most of the time, it's Adam. The bigger blame is put on Adam. He should have pulled out the sword and cut off the serpent's head, but he stood there quietly and let his wife destroy herself. That's what he did. It, is, it was in this moment, Genesis 3, that sin entered the world. Do you understand what sin is? Do, do you truly understand it? Because sin is not just doing wrong things, doing bad stuff. That, that's how most people, that's how a child understands it. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of grown quick Christians understand it. It's not just doing bad stuff. Sin is rebellion against God. God made a command, they rebelled. We are all sinners. We have all followed in their footsteps. Sir, God tells you to love your wife as Christ loves the church, and you rebel against that. Ma'am, God tells you to submit to and respect your husband. You rebel against that. We are sinners. It's the very nature of who we are. We do not obey God's word. We go against it in every way. We insist on our own way. We think we, we, think we know how this world works better than God, better than the God who made it. If this message is foreign to you, you haven't read the Bible because it screams from the pages of Scripture. There's nothing good in us. There's nothing good in us. Thus, conflict enters the story. Well, what do they do after this happens? They, they eat of the fruit, and immediately what happens? Verse 7, their eyes are opened. They know that they're naked, and what do they do? They cover themselves up. They go over to a bush and they break off some branches and they tie them together and they tie that around their waist to cover themselves up. They're covering themselves up. It's shame and regret, the outworking of conflict, the outworking of strife, shame and regret. They're trying to cover themselves up. And this now flows into every part of life, doesn't it? It's why we see this when an, eight, when an eight-year-old gets picked last for the dodgeball team. It's just the most humiliating thing in the world to them. When a teenager wants to fit in, they're willing to do just about anything to fit in, aren't they? Lest they experience shame and regret. We see it in, the, in, in how um, there, there's a fear among the elderly of being forgotten about. We don't want to forget about them. That's their fear because of shame and regret. And then we see it in married couples being in conflict with each other. They had perfect intimacy before this, and now that's broken, and conflict enters. God comes and finds them. Verse 8, the Lord God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He comes to find them. He calls out to them, where are you? Where are you at? I've searched this whole garden. You're not here. Where are you? Why does he do that? Because he knows, he knows all things, doesn't he? He knows that, um, he knows that they're hiding over in the bush. He can see Adam's foot sticking out. Like he knows they're there. Why does he do this? Because he wants them to confess and own up to what they did. He, he, he wants them to confess, but they don't. Because if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He wants them to confess. God desires to forgive, to reconcile, and to cleanse. But we would rather deny and blame That's what they do. That's what Adam and Eve do here. They don't confess. They don't own up to where they have failed. They blame. What does Adam say? He he says, 
that woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me that fruit and I ate of it. Who's he blaming there? Well, sort of his wife, but more than that, he's blaming God. God, this is your fault that I disobeyed. You gave me that woman and look what I did. It's your fault. He has wrecked his life and he's wrecked his family and he won't even own up to it. He won't do that. And then what does Eve say? Well, she goes with the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. No, he didn't. He tempted you, but he did not shove the fruit down your throat. You chose to take it and eat it. Um, a, a lot of times people tell me their struggles that they're having, and, and they always blame the devil when they do it. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a decent person. The devil's just trying to trip me up. Like, it, it's, it's not his fault. It, it's yours. He may tempt you, but you're responsible for your choices. You're responsible for your choices. Scripture actually presents there's three enemies of you, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil's one of them. The world is another, and, and your flesh is another. You, you're part of your problem. Only a third of your problems are the devil. A third are you and a third of the world. Probably, actually, 80% of, is your flesh, and 10% is the devil, and 10% is the world. Um, you're more sinful than, than you think you are. At this point, verses 14 to I think the rest of the chapter, we're not going to read those parts, but, but, but God puts a curse on the world. Sin enters the world, and all conflict flows from that. The cosmos itself is cracked by this event. The universe itself is unhinged by what happens here. Death comes from this, and conflict comes from this. It's why husbands and wives fight. It's why parents and children fight. It's why a boss and employee can't get along. It's why siblings don't get along. It's why friends have falling outs. It's why nations go to war with one another because of what happened right here. Because of what happened right here. Soldiers have to die on the battlefield because of this incident. Because of this incident. God puts a curse on the world because of it. Notice verse 16. To the woman he said... Um, skip the part about childbirth, going on in the second part. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Right there, marital conflict comes right here. They're, they're both going to have desires, and they're going to rule over each other. There's going to be some strife that goes on within their marriage. Conflict in marriage arises out of the sinfulness of our hearts, or conflict of any kind arises out of the sinfulness of our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Let me read that again, just in case you didn't get it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So why then would you ever listen to a cliche that says, follow your heart? Follow your heart, you know, the thing that is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Follow that. Follow your heart, it's foolish. You follow your heart, you end up um, deceived, completely confused, and, and, and desperately sick. That's where it's going to lead you. You have to remind yourself regularly, you're not a good person. You're the worst of sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15, that's what we read earlier. Um, Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm the foremost. I'm the worst one. we got to remind ourselves that every day. We get out of bed, we look in the mirror, we say, good morning, Wretched sinner, good to see you this morning. You need to ingrain that in you so much. Otherwise, you will always see your spouse or your boss or your kids or your brother or sister as the bigger sinner. You will always see them as the problem. And in, in, in this situation, you're not. They're not. You are. 
From your perspective, you know more of your sin than you know their sins. You should see your own sin bigger than theirs. Your heart is sinful, and you insist on your own way all the time. It's what you do. It's what I do. Even if that way is a good thing. Maybe, maybe you know, you've gotten home from a hard day of work and you want rest. That's not a bad desire. But if you tell your wife to shut up so you can have some peace and quiet, that's sinful. It's sinful. It's insisting on your own way. Do you understand the full scale of what sin is? Sin is, isn't just something bad that we do. Sin is the essence of who we are. It's the essence of who we are. Every part of us is filled with sin. The way we think, the words we say, the actions we do, we commit sins of, co- of commission. That is, we choose to do things that we should not do, and we commit sins of omission. That means we neglect to do things that we're supposed to do. We sin when we don't even know that we sin. We fall short in every aspect of our lives. Every relationship we have is tainted by sin, even at its best. Because of the curse upon us, we can't even live out the full potential of what God has for us. We are tainted by sin. It infects in us in every way like a cancer. Every ligament of our body is corrupted by sin. Beyond that, the universe itself is affected by sin. The sign of the curse of sin on the world is death, and everything dies. Everything dies. The blade of grass in your yard, every blade of grass in your yard is going to die, especially right now with no rain. The biggest star in the universe has an expiration date. It will burn out. Every person on the planet dies. You will die. You will die. Someday, they're going to put your lifeless body into a box, and some funeral directors are going to pull the straps out, and you're going to lower six feet into the ground. They're going to throw some dirt over the top of it, pack you down in the ground, and give a few decades, your body's going to deteriorate into nothing but a skeleton. A few more decades, you're going to be a pile of dust, and give a few hundred years, and your tombstone will not even be readable anymore. Somebody will walk by your grave, and they'll see an unreadable stone, and that's where you're going to be. Sin is much more than a couple bad things you do. A couple bad things could be fixed by good behavior. Sin is a terminal disease that has a hold of every part of you. It has corrupted the cosmos, so of course your marriage and every part of your life would be corrupted by it. Wow. You feel pretty terrible about yourself, don't you? I came to church hoping to be encouraged, but you just crushed my self-esteem. But you will never understand the glory of the good news if I don't let you sit in the bad news for a second. You'll never understand how incredible the good news is if I don't let you sit in the bad news for a second. Adam and Eve royally screwed up here, and you have followed suit, and I have followed suit. We have rebelled against the king of glory. We have insisted on our own way. God has created the entire universe with our life. We have looked at him and said, I know how the universe works better than you do. Let me do my own thing. I know how to do this. And he has every right to destroy you where you sit right now. If you were to see his face right this second, you would incinerate into ash. But that's not his will for you. He's a merciful and gracious God. He will judge, but he desires to forgive. He takes no pleasure in death, even of the most wicked sinner. He desires for them to turn and be forgiven. He wants to make them new. If you're here or if you're watching online, 
And you don't know that. You don't know that. If you don't know that, are you weighed down by your sin, by shame, by regret? Jesus came into the world because he loves you, because he loves you. He did not want you to remain in your sins. He wanted to free you from the terrible existence you find yourself in. He wanted to make it so that your destiny is not that pile of bones six feet under. It's something greater than that. You're destined to die for your sins, so Jesus came and died for you. He saw you at your worst. He saw you um, as that wretched sinner. He saw you as that selfish person. He saw you covered in the worst of your sin. He saw you while you were an enemy of God, while you believed you understood your life better than he does. He saw you when you strayed far away, when you were filthy, when you felt like there was no way back, when you were destitute and life felt like there was no way forward. And he said, I want that man. I want that woman in my family, and I'm going to go get them. I'm going to go get them. I will fight every force of hell. I will go to war against their sin. I will battle the forces of death and get them back. The bad news is you're the most miserable sinner you could ever imagine. But the good news is Jesus will count you beloved if you will come to him. Despite who you are, Jesus loves you, and he has not given up on you. Notice how the curse is dealt out to the serpent. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Some translations say he will crush your head. Uh, I kind of like that word better. He will crush your head, you will bruise his heel. One of the descendants of Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent, even though his heel is bruised in the process. Genesis written some 4,000 years before, 4,000, I'm forgetting the number, thousands of years before Jesus comes and dies, um, written, that's crying out of what Jesus is going to do. He's going to crush the head of the serpent while the serpent um, bruises his heel. Jesus died on the cross and the devil thought he had won, but his failure was taken to the grave by Christ. Jesus died taking the punishment of your sin to the grave. He died taking the curse of sin to the grave. He died taking the powers of hell to the grave. He defeated the devil once and for all, and he rose victorious out of the grave over it all so that you don't have to be bound by it anymore. You can be free. And he fought against your conflict, your marital conflict, all the other conflict in your life. 1 John 3, 8, the son of, this is why the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. So why won't you bring, since we're talking about marital conflict, why won't you bring your marital conflict to the feet of Jesus? He came to do away with those kinds of things, to change them. He came to redeem you and give you a new way forward. Do you know Jesus? Has he come and redeemed you? Has he changed your life? Now did you pray some prayer when you were seven? Has he changed you? Has he transformed you? You must receive him. You must believe in his name. You must repent of your sins, turn from them, believe that he died in your place, and commit your life to him as your Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.18, God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God reconciles us through that good news and he makes us a minister of reconciliation. He makes us one who seeks to reconcile, not be at odds with other people. That means if you truly believe and truly love the gospel, you will strive for reconciliation, even with the relationships in your life that, that the most hurt is in, the most hurt is in. The most water under the bridge. Reconciliation builds the bridges. The, the, that relationship with the most hurt might be your marriage. Might be the relationship with your kids. Might be um, 
coworkers. It might be some distant relative that you haven't seen in years. Y'all got in a fight years ago. You haven't seen them since. Jesus died so that you would build a bridge back with them and repair that. Maybe say, I don't want to fight that battle. I don't want to reconcile. It's too hard. Then I would tell you, turn and stare at the good news. Turn and stare at the good news that God was reconciling you, the worst of sinners in the death of his son. Now he makes you a reconciler. So can I plead with you to pray the Lord would change your heart if that's your attitude? Because it's what's best for you. And then can I challenge you to work toward reconciliation with that person? Let's talk about what that looks like. We're going to talk about um, how to reconcile a conflict and then how to establish new habits so that hopefully that conflict doesn't happen again. Um, as we've been speaking specifically to marriage, remember this could be um, for any conflict. There's three steps to um, reconciling a conflict. First of all, you have to confront the issue. You have to confront the issue. That's what person number one has to do. They have to confront the issue. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't avoid it. Confront it. Face it head on. Um, save forgiveness for the big stuff. Just, do, just get over the small stuff. Um, save forgiveness for the big stuff. Just get over the small stuff. But confront the big stuff. Confront it. Confront it. If you sweep it under the rug and continue doing that, and don't just get over it or don't seek forgiveness, you lead to a massive blow-up 15 years from now down the road. You pile it on top of it over and over. Confront the issue. Confront it gracefully. Build up the other. Don't be rash with your words. Don't raise your voice. Use wise words. That is, don't say, you're such a jerk. You're just like your mama. Don't say things like that. No, clearly and calmly explain how you feel and why you feel that way. And confront the issue with the gospel. You're not here to condemn. You want new creation to come. You want redemption from this. You want better days ahead. You're not seeking to attack the other person. You're working for their sanctification. And then get help if necessary. That is, if you two can't work it out, bring in a third party to work it out. So, some of you hear this and think, um, he's got no idea how big my problem is. Well, then get help. Get help to help you with it. So, first of all, confront the issue. Secondly, confess your sin. Confess your sin in this situation. Don't defend yourself. Don't be sorry you made your wife mad or your friend mad or whoever. Don't, don't be sorry you made them mad. Be sorry for what you did that made them mad. You're the guilty one, not them in, in this part of the scenario. You confess your sin in a situation. Don't have in your mind exactly how the person has to apologize because they will always let you down in that case. Don't use the 60-40 method. That is, it's 60% their fault, it's 40% yours, so they need to apologize first. Just humble yourself and confess first. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So examine how you have contributed to the problem. Typically, each party in a conflict has somehow contributed to the problem, except in very severe circumstances. And then third step. So first step was confront the issue. Second step, confess your own sins. Third, forgive. Forgive. There's four promises in forgiveness. If you're going to forgive somebody, you've got to have four promises within that. Number one, I will not think about this incident again. Secondly, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you one day. Third, I will not talk to others about this incident. And fourth, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. 
Because when you forgive, it's casting it into the sea. It's gone. It's wiped away. It's forgiven. It's forgiven. You work through conflict like that. You confront the issue. You confess your own sins. And you forgive the other sins. And then you establish some new, um, some new attitudes, some new habits within that relationship. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Paul lays out here several commands for the church. Um, this is right prior to that passage that we've been looking at about marriage. He lays out some, some um, kind of cross-centered communication tips um, within the church, within all relationships. Ephesians 4, 25-32. All of these things that he's going to tell the church to do come out of who God is. Come out of who God is, what, what God is about. So let's read it. Um, Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members, out, um, we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. We're going to skip over one of those. As we talk through them, um, the one in verse 28, because it doesn't have to do with communication and restoring conflict, we're going to look at all the others. Um, 25, put away all falsehood, but speak the truth with his neighbor. Put away falsehood, speak the truth. Reflects back to verse 15 of Ephesians, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. God is revealer. He reveals himself. He does not conceal. He reveals. He illuminates. You have to do the same with those in your life. You have to speak the truth, but do it in love. You can have no expectations of someone else that you don't voice because what, what will happen is you will get frustrated and bitter at them, and, you, and they will not meet your expectations. You have to speak your expectations, speak the truth, don't expect them to read your mind, and don't drop hints hoping they'll figure it out. So maybe, maybe you really want your spouse to, to sweep the kitchen. And so what do you do? You put the broom in front of the refrigerator, and you think that'll, that'll get them to do it. If the broom's in front of the refrigerator for me, I'm moving the broom because I want to drink from inside. Okay, that hint's not helping. Don't, don't drop hints like that. Just say, honey, would you sweep the kitchen, please? Be angry and do not sin. Verse 26, be angry, do not sin. God shows wrath towards sin, but not in a sinful way. His disposition is one of love and mercy. He has to be provoked to anger, and he is only provoked to bring about justice. As we're thinking of marriages, even redeemed marriages are going to have conflict. You're, you're forgiven of your sins, but you're still a sinner. Sinners butt heads and have conflict. Sometimes you need to just walk away so that you don't have to sin in that conflict. Do, he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. What's that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that, that you stay up all night and work it out 
Um, that, that may be what you need to do, but um, if you're staying up all night, I, I'm going to get more tired. I'm going to end up saying things I don't mean because I'm just tired. Go to bed, get up and figure it out tomorrow morning when you're more awake. It, it gives opportunity to the devil if you put it off. He wants to devour you. Don't give him the chance. That's what it's saying. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. This is verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only speak that which builds up others. God is not how some of you imagine him, just always disappointed with you, always scoffing at everything you do wrong. If you know Jesus, he sings over you. He wants nothing but to speak well of you. So have a rule that you will not speak ill of your spouse to anybody. You will not do that. Husbands, do not speak evil of your wife. She's your bride. Christ does not speak bad of his church. This comes in different forms from um, all different sides. Sometimes when I'm with a group of men, um, they'll make little jabs at their wife um, just to get a laugh out of the group, and I find that to be despicable. I just find that to be despicable. Um, It it makes me want to spit. You'll put your wife down to look good. Men, you need friends in your life who are going to call you out when you speak bad of your wife like that and not laugh at your stupid jokes. And that's what they are. They're stupid. They're not funny. They're, They're not funny. He says, put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and, and, and all malice. Um, God is love. He, he does not exhibit these um, things toward people wrongly. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Um, when, when we show these, um, we're doing the opposite of what it says in verse 32. Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. And then finally, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus has overcome every sin your spouse has committed. He's overcome every sin anybody in this church has committed that wrongs you. For some reason, you still think you need to hold that sin against them, though, as if the wrath of God was satisfied for their sins, but apparently your wrath is greater than God's wrath and needs to still be appeased. He says, as God in Christ forgave you, that's how you forgive other people. You must understand the full weight of how much you were forgiven if you're going to forgive It'll be clear if you don't understand if you're not, it'll be clear if you don't understand how much you're forgiven if you're not quick to forgive others. Now, forgiveness may take time, not necessarily saying you're going to snap your fingers and it's going to be over, but would you work toward that? Would you work toward seeing forgiveness come? Forgiveness costs. It, it costs, but it's worth it. It cost Jesus his life, but he got a bride. He got the joy set before him. Forgiveness always costs something. It will cost you to put away that wrong, but it's worth it. Can't you see that on the other side of forgiveness is joy for you? Forgiveness puts away the past so that you can build a better future together. Put away your sin so you can have eternal joy. Christ has come to make us new. He's come to make us new. He's come to make conflict go away. He wants to take our sinful hearts and transform them. Christ makes it his goal to forgive, reconcile, and make us new. It's his very heart to forgive and to redeem. Friend, a true sign that you know him is if you have that heart too. A true sign that you are in right relationship with him is if you have that heart too. You will be a reconciler of conflict as you've been reconciled. So I ask you to consider your own heart today. Are you bitter all the time? Are you slow to forgive? Do you hold sins against other people? 
Do you insist on your own way all the time? Well, if that's the case, I would ask you, have you been born again? Have you received Christ truly? He will send the Holy Spirit, he says. The Spirit will come and transform you and make you new. Maybe the reason you're, you're so untransformed is that you've never been saved. Maybe that's just what your marriage needs. Maybe that's just what your conflict needs. Maybe, maybe your relationships in life are failing so much because you don't know Jesus. Now is the chance to come to him. We're going to sing a song. The altar's open. I'm here at the front if you'd like to come talk about that. Let's pray. Father, we're all sinners, and conflict comes when we butt up against each other. We do that in marriage. We do that in this church. We do that um, among friends, among relationships. But, Lord, you came to put that away. You came to do away with that. You came to reconcile. Lord, I pray for any hearts here who are unreconciled with you, that they would come running to you. I pray for anybody here who's unreconciled with somebody in their life. I pray that you would move them to quickly make that right, to quickly seek to make that right. Lord, do not let them put it off again. Lord, I pray that for my own heart as well. Lord, help us to make things right with those in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Number 413, turn your eyes.